I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. This week, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee, a Republican, announced a special session of the legislature to consider various proposals related to public safety. But unusually for a reliable conservative and Republican state, Lee won 65% of the vote in his 2022 election campaign, and both chambers of the state legislature are supermajority Republican. The session will consider gun control measures, especially so called red flag laws. Joining me to discuss what's going on in Tennessee and the gun control movement generally are my colleague Robert Stilson and John Harris, executive director of the Tennessee Firearms Association. Uh, Robert, welcome back. John, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work with the Tennessee Firearms Association? Sure. I'm a practicing attorney here in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been practicing 37 years now. I was one of 12 that helped form the Tennessee Firearms Association in 1995. I serve in a volunteer capacity as its executive director and also as the treasurer for its PAC. And so why is Governor Lee calling the special session and why are they considering red flag laws and what is a pretty Republican state? In March of this year, there was a school shooting at a place called Covenant School in Nashville where three adults and three children were killed by a 28-year-old female who reportedly had been a student at the school in her past. At this point, uh, there's very little information that's been released. There's actually a massive lawsuit pending trying to get the manifesto records. So we don't really know what the motivating factors were for the shooting. Uh, There's some hint that it may have been um, that she was getting psychological or mental health counseling, but we don't know to what extent. Like, again, the manifesto itself has not been released, so we don't have clear indicators of what the motive was. But on April the 11th, shortly after the shooting, Governor Lee uh, asked the legislature to enact a red flag law, although he calls it a temporary mental health order of protection. It's a red flag law. So what? Let's for, for those who might not know, what is a red flag law? Yeah, a red flag law is a category of law that only about 22 states have, which attempts to identify dangerous people, usually based on mental health or emotional health reasons, that pose an immediate risk of harm to themselves or others. And then the theory behind a red flag law is that the police will go out after whatever the procedure is, and the procedure varies, and seize that person's weapons, typically just seizes the firearms but leaves the person at loose, at large, in the community so that they still have access to their potential victims. Okay. And so uh, are, are you guys – is Tennessee Firearms Association support or oppose such, such uh, a, pro- a proposal? No, we, we strongly believe that red flag laws uh, – violate the constitutional principles established by the U.S. Supreme Court in the 2022 Bruin decision. And could, could you elaborate a little bit more on what those uh, constitutional problems are? Sure. The U.S. Supreme Court in uh, June of 2022 released an opinion in a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And although it was focused specifically on New York's handgun permitting laws, 
the Bruin decision itself established a standard that the U.S. Supreme Court has now mandated must be applied to test the constitutionality of any law or regulation that might impact the broad scope of rights protected under the Second Amendment. And what the court essentially said is, if an activity possessing a firearm is covered by the scope of the Second Amendment, then it's presumptively shielded from government infringements. And the second prong of that analysis is that if a proposed government infringement, a law, a red flag law, for example, is offered, that the burden is on the government to show that the national historical tradition, that's a quote from the court, as it existed in 1791, which is the year in which the Bill of Rights was ratified, allowed for restrictions or regulations of that type. So the court essentially said the Second Amendment is an absolute bar unless the government can show that at the time it was adopted, regulations of the type we're discussing were common amongst the original 13 states. So so because, so because essentially because you know, taking people's guns away uh, before they've been fully adjudicated by the courts wasn't a thing uh, when the Second Amendment was ratified and understood by its ratifiers, then it is presumptively invalid. Yes. And in fact, there have been two uh, New York State uh, trial court decisions since Bruin was decided, which invalidated New York's own red flag law. Mm hmm. So, Robert, obviously, uh, as we have learned with many issues, just because the liberal side loses at the Supreme Court doesn't mean they give up. Uh, so who's pushing uh, who's who's pushing gun control at the national level? This is all part of the Tennessee fight is sort of a br little piece of a broader national fight, isn't it? It is. And I think there's a couple important points to make when you're talking about who's pushing it. And, and the first one is, of course, you've got the gun control, the, the traditional gun control advocacy groups, which we'll talk about in a minute. But before we do that, gun control is one of those issues alongside abortion, increasingly climate change, um, several other um, issues that, that really have, there's a cross, a cross policy uh, alignment where you see a lot of groups that you might not associate with gun control specifically adopt certain um, gun control policy proposals as part of their platform, counterintuitively almost like labor it's unions. it's the it's the coalition dynamic that all these lefty groups, organized labor, environmentalists who might otherwise not be interested in an issue, feel either impelled or choose to go along with whatever it is that the liberals have decided to do. Exactly, and it, so that's one of those issues we see that a lot in. But but of course, you do have the dedicated gun control advocacy groups and. You know, I did a study earlier this year in which um, I tried to to take, you know, the whole world of gun control advocacy advocacy and uh, quantify it. So the landscape, the funders, the um, and the policies policies that they were proposing. Um, when you're thinking about gun gun control advocacy groups in the United States, you want to think of what I call the Big Five, and those are Everytown, Giffords, Brady, Sandy Hook Promise, and March for Our Lives. And each one of those groups has a 501c3 and a 501c4 component. And then three of them also have political action committees. So you can think about 501c3s as being charitable gun control money and 501c4s being political gun control money. And then, of course, PACs being extra political, you might say, gun control money. Um, of those, every town's the biggest. Um, so I think, well, we should say 
out of all of the groups that I analyzed, uh, all the gun control ad- advocacy nonprofits I could find, um, those five groups accounted for over 83% of the total 501c3 money I could find and over 96% of the total 501c4 money I could find. And every town's the biggest by far. Um, every town being the one uh, established by uh, Michael Bloomberg. And it brought in, um, I looked at the 2019-2020 cycle, um, something like 61 million on the C3 side and then 105 million on the C4 side and then 32 million on the um, on the PAC side. Now, now you can't add those numbers together and get like a grand total because because groups move money. Uh, right, right. They shuffle they shuffle money across from their from their charitable arm to their lobbying arm, their lobbying arm to the PAC arm, so on and so forth. Exactly. So, but those would be the ones to know um, on on the landscape side, and then of course you've got you know the funders to talk about too. And other than Bloomberg, who are the the biggest of the funders? Yeah, Bloomberg is the name to know. I think if you if you if you were to know one one person in the world of gun control advocacy, you you should know Michael Bloomberg. He's the big big bankroller, especially on the political side. On the charitable side, it's interesting because what you run into is an issue we run into a lot of uh, different issue advocacy groups, not just gun control. Is you run into donor advised funds, and donor advised funds are they're these big. They are nonprofits. They're C three charities, but the way it works is you'll have a, you'll have a, a upstream donor who will contribute to the donor advised fund and they'll have an account there and they'll set it up and say, okay, I've, I've made my charitable contribution to this nonprofit and it, it can stay there. The money can stay there in the personal account. And then it will, um, later on that donor can recommend that that money be donated to another charity. So for practical purposes, what this means is when you're looking at funding, you'll see millions of dollars coming from the big donor advised fund providers, Fidelity, Many, Schwab. many people are calling this dark money. <laughs> Yes, and I guess I could see why because you can't get to the original donor, right? But if that's an individual, you wouldn't be able to see that anyway, right? So, um, when you're looking at the big funders of charitable, like the the C three sides of these big gun control advocacy groups, you know, Giffords C three side, Everytown C three side, you see a lot of donor advised fund provider money, and obviously that's coming from one more upstream donor than the fund. But that, that's kind of the end that you that, that you can't get farther than that. So, John, uh, you know, with this special session now being called in Tennessee, are what are you guys seeing as far as the like who other than the governor is pushing for uh, Tennessee to adopt the red flag law? Well, we've been interviewing uh, members of the General Assembly and predominantly we've interviewed Republican members because it's a Republican supermajority. They control the agenda. And, and to a person, everyone that we've interviewed have taken the position that they don't think we need a special session because we'll go back into regular session five months from now in January. The other thing that they've told us consistently is they don't support a red flag law. But the governor, and we'd seen hints at this, the governor released his proclamation last night and it's got 18 different points in it. And so his proclamation covers things like stalking, sex trafficking, um, wanting to pass a variety of mental health topics from funding to uh, law enforcement access to mental health committals. So it's a very broad package as opposed to what you typically see in a special session of a very narrow topic 
Uh, like, for example, most recently, the special session here in Tennessee was when Governor Lee wanted to give a billion dollars of taxpayer money to Ford Motor Company to build an electric vehicle plant near Memphis. That's the kind of stuff you typically see. You don't see this broad, throw everything on the wall and let's see what stick kind of approach. Mm-hmm. But the governor's strongly behind it. The legislature, I think, has been seduced into being willing to look at some of these other issues like safe storage laws or laws that track 16, 17-year-olds, even though that had nothing to do with the covenant shootings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Democrats, I mean, they're seeing this as, as an absolute you know, gift from their divine being, whoever that may be, that they now have a governor calling a special session to focus on red flag and gun control at a time when apparently no other general assembly in the nation is in session. So it gives perfect opportunity for groups like Evertown to load up the buses, load up the planes and ship all of their advocates, typically paid advocates to Nashville, Tennessee to try to pass a red flag law in what's commonly deemed to be a red state. Now that make that makes sense. Uh, so Robert, you know, a lot of these, all these groups, every town, Giffords, it's always common sense gun control. We're going to have common or excuse me, common sense gun safety. Uh, let me let me get their euphemisms right. Um, but you did some digging into their sort of broader agendas, and uh, you you did not agree with that assessment. No, I, I think there's two. So first, the on the on the nomenclature, right? Gun control versus gun. That, that's intentional. If you if you look at how this is framed from gun control advocates, they don't use that term, and they used to use it much more. And I think that they and found then they, and then they started losing. Yeah, and I think it, well, yeah. If you look at the if if you look at the the trend the, the trend on Second Amendment issues over at least the last twenty years since the early two thousands, the Heller decision was I think two thousand eight. I'd say, I'd say it was the the winning streak starts in 04 when the, the assault weapons ban lapses. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Then wasn't renewed. Um, it's really been a consistent. Uh, more or less consistent, at least on the national level through the courts, you know, wins for gun for gun um, rights advocates. And I think that that gun control advocates have adapted um, accordingly and changed their the way they talk about the issues. Again, again, just because liberals start losing doesn't mean they give up. Yeah. And if you dig into the real policy platforms that a lot of these groups put out, you know, not not the not the top line, the real fault lines that we see, um, you know, red flag laws being one or maybe you say, you know, so-called assault weapons bans or high capacity magazine restrictions, those kind of things that are really um, divisive and like the hot button ones. But if you go down a layer below that and you see the kinds of things that they really think like th- these are the stakes we've planted on this issue as, as part of a comprehensive platform, you know, you'll start to see things like like bullet control, right? Like license to possess ammunition type stuff. You'll, you'll start to see um, the protection of lawful Car- commerce and arms act. You know, that was a, of all of all of the ways certain things are spun what, what think, uh, before before we step away from the protection of lawful commerce and arms act what does that do it basically just says what i think will sound like a lot of common sense to folks is that a gun manufacturer or a gun you know someone engaged in the firearms business is not civilly liable just because somebody else misused their product like a criminal uses a gun to commit a crime like it's a simple proposition. It doesn't affect products liability. If you make a defective product, of course, it's still going to be liable. It stands, it, I think, 
and, and, and by the way, the reason that, that law became necessary is because there was a strategy, and they're still trying to revive the strategy, by the way, of basically suing into submission, where you file the lawsuits and try to bankrupt the industry as a way of sort of backdooring into gun control that you can't pass politically. Um, so anyway, this is a federal law that was passed, and it's used by courts to uh, dismiss suits against gun companies. That hasn't stopped the suits from being brought, but it's used to help these, to uh, dismiss these suits. And there was a big one that the um, the government of Mexico brought last year, I think. It was like a $10 billion lawsuit against Smith & Wesson and a number of other participants in the industry saying that they should be liable for Mexico's significant gun violence problem. And of course, the district court dismissed said this is false squarely within the uh, the sort of thing that the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act um, w- was intended to, to, to prevent. So the gun control advocates would like to see that law repealed. They call it gun industry immunity, right? They, they, which I think is, is, is um, disingenuous, but that's what, that's how it's spun. And they say, you know, criminals aren't, you know, this is a quote from every town, by the way, criminals aren't, it's a myth that criminals are responsible for their crimes. Um, you know, the gun industry is responsible for, for its marketing practices, which contribute to crime. Um, they would like, that's what they would like to see. But failing that there is, there are state level effort, efforts to, um, use one of the loopholes or not a loophole is the wrong word, probably an exception, uh, in the, in the, uh, PLCAA where you could still be sued. Um, if you're, a, if you violate, you know, uh, laws related to the marketing or sales of a product. So you're trying to get these. So the States are trying to pass these laws related to the marketing and sales of firearms and accessories and, um, make it so that they can get around the PLCAA that way with their suits and achieve the same objective. So that is an interesting battleground that I uncovered when I sort of um, delved into the policies because it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a backdoor approach to it, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, how does, um, you know, what, uh, what, what do these groups want to see? I mean, do they want, basically Britain, Australia style confiscation, uh, sort of outright prohibition on all but the, you know, most ancient sporting weapons, that kind of, that kind of thing, or are they, are they less clear? I'll I'll give my opinion, um, based on what I'm seeing. Um, I think the essence of gun control is restricting access to firearms, right? There's that, that is what it does. Right. And so you'll see a lot of groups say, you know, we would like to see less firearms in civilian hands period. You know, that's, that's pretty straightforward, but I think because of the constitutional issues and because of the political issues, even if something's constitutional, you might not be able to get it passed. You know, Mm -hmm. there's political and constitutional road, significant roadblocks to passing a lot of these specific proposals. In my opinion, a lot of these, a lot of the activities of these groups are, are long-term denormalized firearms in American civic life, right? Yeah, because de- you're not... de- denormal- denormalize is a term that comes out of uh, comes out of anti-smoking literature. The the in in public health that okay. you you know when that the way that you get people to stop smoking and to start more importantly to start support, supporting government policy to limit smoking is to make it seem like an unusual weird thing that people don't do. So when, uh, you know, pick your 1960s movie star, well, when Ronald Reagan, when he was an actor, was selling Chesterfields, you know, that's normal, you know. So even if you 
don't smoke or you don't like the idea of smoking, it's a normal thing that people do. Okay, whatever. Uh, but then you restrict advertising, you restrict depictions in media, you restrict depict, you know, you uh, criticize it whenever you can. Then you can start passing laws against it. And if you are one of these public health figures, that denormalization model, because it works so effectively in anti-smoking, is like, I mean, it's your, I've got, it's third and one, and I have a, you know, the best fullback in the National Football League, give him the ball, kind of, kind of play. I think, I think that's what a lot of these efforts are directed towards, because if you, if you're a gun owner, or, you know, you grew up around guns, or your friends, you know, you, you, your friends are responsible gun owners, like the vast majority are, you're not going to be as likely to support these sort of um, proposals as you would be if, if firearms become a less um, less of a feature in American life. And I, I do think that that's what a lot of these efforts are directed towards long term. So I guess, you know, building off that, I'll throw to both of you and then uh, and then that may conclude our uh, our discussion. Uh you know, do we think the other side is succeeding or do we think that the Second Amendment side uh, is? Um, well, Mike, you, you cut out your audio cut out there for a second, but I, I'll throw I, I'm curious for John's thoughts on that. How um, what, what he sees uh, do, is the gun control side succeeding or, or not? Well, in, in Tennessee, for example, we see a lot of money being raised, particularly post-covenant, where the gun control agenda has, as you indicated, Robert, it sort of morphed into this public safety argument as opposed to overtly saying, let's put all the guns in the trash compactor and crush them. And what's interesting about even the resort to the public safety argument is that the Supreme Court in Bruin said that the public safety argument is now irrelevant, that constitutionally you have to go back to the 1791 National Historical Tradition and that a government can't overcome a void in that required proof by arguing it's necessary for public safety. What we hear in Tennessee, and I think it's common across the country, is we see uh, Bloomberg's agents mm-hmm. here, it's mom's demand action. You know, they show up with the red t-shirts and there's 40 or 50 of them at any one time in the legislature running them out saying we're moms, we own guns, we support the second amendment, but we need reasonable public safety laws to protect the public from people who shouldn't have guns that do crazy things. Then we have, and, and, and we've documented this extensively we have the, the public agency under our governor's administration, the Department of Safety and TBI, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, routinely testifying that they support the Second Amendment, but that they don't think people should be carrying guns in public for self-defense unless they have fingerprints, background checks, regular training. Click off the list. It's, it's what Bloomberg would say, but Bloomberg only says it as a step towards his agenda and now he's got the administration parroting it, and and all that does is leverage the gun control movement's argument into being something that's seen as yeah, to, to make, reasonable public policy to, to make them appear more moderate. And, than and I think that's a big danger. Established. Uh, Robert, yes. your thoughts? 
I, I would agree with that. I think, I, I think what gets presented, it's only the tip of the iceberg. And, um, so we, we, we've co- I think that's a really important point to make. And I would, I was, you know, the gun control movement's raising a lot of money. That was one of the points I was trying to make in the research too, is to say it, it is a well-funded, um, it is a well-funded movement. There's a lot of money behind it. So in that sense, it, it is successful, but on the policy side and the constitutional side, I, I do think that the, the momentum is behind gun rights right. well, movement. Thanks again to my colleague Robert Stilson and John Harris of the Tennessee Firearms Association for joining. We will include links to Robert's series on the gun control movement and the Tennessee Firearms Association's website in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially...